You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla, international traveler. International traveler, yes. I've been to uh, Tiki Land. <laughs> yeah. Where, where else have you been today? Uh, well, I'm I'm in Anaheim, California. I'm going. Well, to you're Disneyland, Disneyland, Kyla. You're in Disneyland. There's no hiding it. You've already said it on Twitter. I haven't been to Disneyland yet. Well, you're there. You're staying in the Disneyland hotel or someplace nearby. Yep. I'm at the Disneyland Hotel. You're living um, your best life. Living my well-earned trip to Disneyland that I had to put off. little historical background here. Kyla had a trip to Disneyland planned right at the beginning of the pandemic, and that was put off. And then yeah, when things appeared to be improving, she booked another trip to Disneyland. And that was also put off. And both times you were going, I guess, with family or friends or something, and then... Now, you know, nobody's going to book again with you, worried that it's going to be put off for the pandemic. So you've gone to Disneyland on your own, which I have to say makes perfect sense to me. Why? Because traveling with other people is often very stressful. You're waiting for them. Um, You and I have been to conferences and various things before. and uh, You're a fairly easygoing traveler, I would say, but generally... You're waiting for somebody else. You're waiting for somebody to show up. Uh, You're waiting for somebody to come down to the lobby. You know, there's just all of this time that you're waiting and then the planning. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing it on your own, it's not so bad. This is how I found traveling with my kids on my own is actually quite easy because you just say, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. And they just come along. Whereas if you're traveling with other adults, you got to organize your whole schedule to them. Well, I travel with my mom often and, you know, she, if I tell her we're getting up at eight o'clock and we're going to be there for the rope drop, she will be up and she will be ready to go whether or not. (laughs) That's your mom, uh, you know, and your mom is particular, uh, I think probably unusual in that way. She's very flexible. Yeah. She's also used to me. (laughs) She realizes no point in arguing, just do what Kyla wants. She's probably right anyway. Well, it usually works. Yeah. Your so. systems are your systems are effective. Yeah. So yeah. you're going to be up tomorrow morning as the podcast is coming out. You'll be up for the rope drop. I will be up. I'm going to be first in line. <laughs> Screw the little kids. Is it going to be? Is it going to be? Uh, thinking of us listening to the driving law podcast. Is it going to be the cars ride first? No, that's California Adventure. That's not till Sunday. Um, oh. so first. I'm debating. I don't know whether to do Indiana Jones because that's a car ride. That's a car ride. Yes. Or I could do Space Mountain because it's hot. You know, it ends up getting really long lines and it breaks down a lot. Or I could ride one of the new Star Wars rides. Well, the new Star Wars rides, I mean, the the Star Wars land has not been nearly as popular as they thought. So my thinking is that you probably should leave that to later on. Mm-hmm. I would go with Indiana Jones or um, or Space Mountain. 
Mm -hmm. That's my suggestion. The thing about Space Mountain is it's a little bit too intense for me. I enjoy it, but I don't enjoy it at the same time. So I usually really want to do it once or twice. Skip it then. Yeah, I think it's one that I could get like a fast pass for or whatever, Disney Genie Plus pass for. Sure. Point is that you don't have to go on it, Kyla, if it's if it's something that stresses you out. I'm not going back onto uh Goofy's flight flying school roller coaster. Oh. Yeah. oh my god, they should have a sign on that. This ride not suitable for anyone over 30. Yeah, too frightening. Not as frightening as Mickey's fun wheel. My daughter and I were on that. She was small and uh we were on that. <laughs> <laughs> and it looked like a pleasant Ferris wheel and it was the most terrifying thing. And she was laughing. She thought it was hilarious. Mm-hmm. Never go on Mickey's fun wheel again. It's not fun. Nope. I'm in a dull end of the of Disneyland anyway. This is not Kyla's favorite uh, Disneyland rides podcast. This no, but you could do that. Podcast. It would be, it would be well listened to. I'm sure people love Disneyland. Yeah, there's too much content for it. So, so do we have some? Uh, yeah, there there would be too much content, but you could you could always make the old another podcast. Like you've got extra time, Kyla. I know. Look, you can afford a trip to Disneyland. You can afford to take a half an hour every week and tell us all about it. Um, what do you want to talk about on the driving law podcast? There's lots of new driving law. There's so much. So last week, right after we re- re- released our episode, major bombshell from the BC Supreme Court. Just like, just hanging out. Like, I'm almost getting the sense that the courts are releasing the big judgments on Fridays so that they don't end up on the Driving Law podcast. Well, I assume that most of the BC Supreme Court judges are listening to the Driving Law podcast at lunchtime when they go out, you know, for their walks with their headphones on. Yeah, or they have like a listening party every once in a while where all the judges get together and listen. Could be. (laughs) Okay. Get educated. So... No, uh, I don't think it's a conspiracy to to make my podcast less timely, but major case. So this <clears throat> case, this is Lee and Attorney General of BC, um, which doesn't trigger me at all. Um, and uh, there's a number of petitioners, as well as the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia. Full disclosure, I'm on the Board of Governors. And it pertained to a constitutional challenge to legislation that was brought in by um, the BC government as part of the uh, uh, as part of the um, sort of fixing the dumpster fire rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. ICBC mm-hmm. out of control spending, no money. Yeah. yeah, can't afford to pay the claims. Yeah, insurance premiums through the roof. And litigating things that didn't need to be litigated and settled and wasting money that way. But nobody ever points the finger at ICBC for doing stupid shit. Anyway, one of the many stupid rules that the BC government under David Eby's auspices before he became the not responsible for ICBC anymore was to create a regulation that limited. uh, So it was a regulation under the Evidence Act that said that plaintiffs in personal injury litigation stemming from a motor vehicle collision could only recover disbursements that totaled 6% of the value of their claim. 
So if your claim is worth $100,000, you can get recover $6,000 worth of disbursements. Paul, for our listeners who may not be lawyers, what are disbursements? All the things you have to pay in order to uh, basically to prosecute your claim. Um, and it might be expert witnesses. It might be paying to, for disclosure of documents from hospitals. Uh, it might be, you know, you name it, uh, basically. Filing fees, uh, process exactly. servers, private investigators, <clears throat> reports, um, the fees to get your medical records from your doctor because they don't. Investigations do into the vehicles, mechanical fitness of the other vehicle. Uh-huh. All yeah. of that. This is all disbursements. It's the costs associated with advancing the litigation. And ICBC said, you know, these disbursements are out of control. And they pointed to like some relatively prominent cases that were sort of paraded in the news as ways to deal with this, um, where people people had claims that were worth only like $10,000, but their disbursements were thirty dollars or $40,000. And this was ICBC's way and the government's way of saying, look, it's a waste of money. It's lawyers who are out of control and experts who are who are gouging people for their reports. And the taxpayers ultimately and the ratepayers are the ones that are on the hook for this. The problem is that the reason with those cases that it cost tens of thousands of dollars to recover less money than was spent was because, again, ICBC refused to acknowledge that a claim existed or that a claim had any value to begin with. Yep. So most of the time, the money that was spent on disbursements, like aside from, you know, like the stuff you you know you're going to incur, filing fees, photocopying fees, process servers, that type of stuff. Aside from the things you know you're going to incur as costs, the, the costs above and beyond that are usually only incurred because ICBC says, you know, it, prove it to us that this is the case. Yeah. They don't take you at your word. I mean, when I, <clears throat> I've told this story on the podcast before, when I was in my accident and um, ICBC wanted proof of my income and because of the way my my pay, the you, you pay me is structured, each file that I've worked on has a single document associated with how much I get paid. And so there were thousands of pages of documents that had to be photocopied, redacted, and provided to ICBC. And it was all their request. It was their request. They wanted And it was at huge expense. Each one of those documents, because they didn't believe the the Revenue Canada material that they had showing what my income was. Like I was falsely reporting to Revenue Canada that I made more money than I actually did because most people want to pay more taxes than they owe. Yes. It's so weird. weird. It ended up costing $6,000. Right then. That did not need to be paid if they had just believed me about what I earn in a year. Well, I'm going to run into that soon with my own ICBC claim. Yeah. So they said 6% of the value of the claim uh, in an ICBC fight. Um, And this obviously stacked the deck in this litigation. And it was clear 
Like it was really clear that this was solely done to try and save money for ICBC. So clear, in fact, that the judge did not hold back in commenting on it. So this is Mr. Justice Smith, who is a been a BC Supreme Court judge for a long time. I've appeared in front of him a couple of times. He's very smart. Um, he calls it like he sees it. And paragraph 12 of his judgment, he says, uh, a regulation can be set aside only if it is found to be unconstitutional or if it is inconsistent with the objective or scope of the enabling statute. The court has no jurisdiction to rule on the merits of the regulation. It's likely or the wisdom of the policy that gave rise to it. That said, the impugned regulation cannot be properly understood without reference to its practicable practical impact, including some obvious anomalies that it creates. And then, of course, he talks about the role of expert evidence in proving the existence, causation, present and future impacts of injuries, um, that all of these things actually require medical and other experts, and um, uh, that uh, paragraph 15, he says, the impugned regulation applies only to actions for personal injuries arising from motor vehicle accidents, although amendments to the enabling statute would permit its extension to other personal injury cases. I therefore cannot ignore the reality that the impugned regulation operates to the immediate and primary benefit of ICBC. And he quotes from Justice Kent in an earlier case, where <laughs> Justice Kent who, if you think Justice Smith calls it like he sees it, Justice mm. Kent really calls it like he sees it. <laughs> everyone that I talk to when they're like, I'm in front of Kent, everyone is like, good luck to you. <laughs> I quit well, you, You're, you're going to know what he's thinking. You're going to know what he's thinking. And if you're losing, you're going to lose. <clears throat> you're going to lose hard and it's going to hurt. Um, but that's fine. He says, the thinly veiled purpose of this legislation is to improve the finances of ICBC by reducing the quantity of expert evidence in motor vehicle accident liability claims and to thus both reduce litigation costs and produce lower damage awards, whether by way of settlement or at trial. While all of this may serve the best financial interests of the government and its crown corporation auto insurance monopoly, it makes the more it makes more challenging the already difficult task of the course in determining the nature and extent of the plaintiff's injuries and the appropriate medical treatment that might be required in the future. And so this is relied on in Justice Smith's um, judgment. Um, and ultimately, of course, he finds it unconstitutional. Paragraph 70. Uh, he points out that the impugned regulation applies the same limit of 6% to total of total damages to all cases without regard to the legislature's recognition of judicial discretion and the increased costs likely to flow from it. Um, the discretion is specifically provided to avoid serious prejudice, but the impugned regulation creates a financial barrier or disincentive and therefore possible further prejudice to litigants asking the court to exercise that discretion. And he finds it to be uh, uh, unconstitutional um, because it is not consistent with the objective language and purpose of the Evidence Act, which is to give courts discretion. And he says, although I find that the lack of judicial discretion is the major reason the impugned regulation is inconsistent, there is a further inconsistency. And then he refers to the fact that there is also a limit on expert evidence on vehicle injury damages 
and um, the uh, uh, it doesn't say anything about the experts needed to prove liability, and it uh, denies recovery of the cost of a liabilities expert attending a trial. So I, I still fail to understand, however, how it's unconstitutional. I mean, the Legislative Assembly has the authority to pass legislation. The yeah. legislation can be unfair. It can be it can be mean. Your remedy is at the ballot box. Um, if it's un, you know if it violates the charter, fine, okay, that that's one thing. Um, it's fairly rare the legislation violates the charter. It's only the application of it that it does. Yeah. I don't see how how the government making decisions that is for their bottom line that is unfair. Just think about the the seven day window for a IR filing an IRP in dispute. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fundamentally unfair, taking away power from and discretion from the court to uh, to provide that remedy. Um, just because the government's allowed to do it, everybody thinks it stinks, but the government's allowed to do it. Right, but it's, it's Section 96 of the Constitution. It essentially says that the province can't legislate at something that goes to the core jurisdiction of the superior courts. Well, and let's take a look at the seven-day window for an IRP. But that's not uh, the jurisdiction of the superior court. The superior uh, court retains discretion on an IRP. I, I think this is expanding the 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 view of the court's authority beyond what was intended by the section of the legislation. So sorry, you're, you think that this this legislation is constitutionally valid? No, I'm not necessarily saying that. I'm just saying that they, it seems fundamentally inconsistent to me. I don't know that it's constitutionally valid or not. What I'm saying is that this feels to me more political than judicial. Well, it may maybe, well. I'm, I may be being devil's advocate a little bit here because I... <laughs> You know, uh, you can see I'm not I'm not on the I'm not on the side of ICBC. Yeah, but, you know, just feels to me like the remedy is at the ballot box. Look, you know what? I think that we need to see more constitutional challenges. When I read this judgment, my mind went, "How many regulations apply to cases I deal with, and is there a way to constitutionally challenge those regulations?" Because the the different there's a big difference between regulating and legislating and regulating it's not something that comes from the ballot box right it's the lieutenant governor and council passes a regulation whereas like legislation is dealt with at the ballot by the ballot box effectively because you elect your mla for your area they're supposed to represent your interests and they're supposed to advocate when legislation is debated, but regulations don't get debated. No, but they're, they're made to facilitate legislation. Right. But when governments start to use regulations to just like improve their financial situation to the detriment of people's rights to access the court, that's tyranny. Uh... That's uh, it, you can still throw the government out, so it's not tyranny. It's, it's not tyranny if you can have a, a free and fair election on a, every few years. Tyranny adjacent? No, it's not. It's not. I mean, 
it's a, it doesn't fall within the zone of tyranny. I, I mean, feel free to go protest in, in Ottawa, but this is not tyranny. Well, this is not Ottawa. This is the provincial government. Free, feel free to go to go stand outside of uh, the legislative assembly in Victoria with a sign that says tyranny on it. And again, this is the provincial government legislating away judicial discretion that is conferred by the federal government and by the constitution. Well, it's not conferred by the federal government. It's conferred by the by the BNA Act. It's conferred by the constitution, and yes. the federal government is able to regulate what superior courts can do. Can they? Yeah, I guess they can. Yeah, the Canada Evidence Act. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. It's this little thing. <laughs> anyway. Um, so yeah, big big case. I think that it will have very broad impact um, as far as its analysis on on the sort of constitutional question of using regulations, and I hope that it has a chilling effect on the use of regulations to limit people's recourse to the courts, um, because we've seen the use of regulation, and you and I have both complained about this when we talk about traffic court the use of regulation to make changing your access to justice rights easier for the government. Well, uh, of course, it's going to go to the Court of Appeal because anything like this in BC goes to the Court of Appeal. And then it goes from there, they try and go to the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah. Um, Two thirds of the cases that make it from the Court of Appeal in BC that make it to the Supreme Court of Canada get overturned at the Supreme Court of Canada, or so I am told. So who knows where it's going to go? Certainty in the law? Not yet. Um, not yet. Not yet. Um, but speaking of uncertainty. The law is the law, I guess. Come on, I'm working on my transition here. Yeah. Speaking of uncertainty in the law, gosh, the United States sure has a problem with Roe v. Wade being overturned. And I know this isn't the abortion law podcast. But did you know that abortion law may actually impact thriving law? Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting considerations that arise when uh, when states say that a uh, unborn child is a is a person. Yes. So a woman in Texas, also known as a hero for the people, um, has challenged an HOV lane ticket. She was driving in the HOV lane. Uh, she's pregnant, um, and she was pulled over and issued a ticket. And she told the police, oh, no, 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 no. You legislate that my fetus is a person. So there are two people in this car right now. It's such a great argument. Um, I, I think they're hooped on that one. I think they're going to have to change the legislation. So here's the thing. If, if you're on TikTok... <clears throat> Um, you should go follow uh, Joe Patitucci. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Um, Texas lawyer. Uh, you can find him on TikTok, the Texas lawyer. Um, he talked about this case. And I think really what it's going to come down to, because of course, what the Dobbs decision did is it, it overturned Roe v. Wade, not to say abortion is illegal, but instead to say states have the power 
to legislate about access to abortion, including going so far as to prohibit it in all cases with no exceptions. But it's an issue for the states to decide individually. Now, this is still a crisis, of course, for women's rights because, and people with you. And completely inconsistent with the states not having any power to regulate handguns. Well, but, but we've seen some states now put some handgun legislation forward for this reason. Um, but the, so Dobbs says this, uh, it's still <clears throat> a problem for, for the rights of people who can get pregnant because when you have states clearly already trying to and having essentially trigger laws, laws that if Roe v. Wade got overturned would within so many days or within the signing off on the of the attorney general come into effect prohibiting abortion. Like we see a 10-year-old girl who was raped being forced to carry her child now. Because of a triggering law. Because um, of a triggering law. So fucked up shit. So it would depend on what state you're in. Because if you're, well, of course, you're in, in Texas. The point is that she's in Texas. Mm-hmm. And they had some law already on the books that yes. said that a, a unborn child is a person. It they have legislation that defines a fetus or an unborn baby as a person in the penal code. So, I think that's uh, a, a heck of a defense she's got. Yeah, I think it's quite brilliant. You can't have it both ways. Like you can't say it's a person so far as we get to decide what you do with your body once you become pregnant, but it's not a person in so far as you driving in an HOB lane. And I was just thinking about like childcare benefits um, that, uh, you know, at at the moment of conception um, and child support at the moment of conception. I was, you know, I tweeted about it the other day. Uh, if you think about it, you know, there's a, a, a pregnant woman needs help. Um, you know, sometimes pregnancies are complicated and sometimes you can't, you know, often you can't work or you can only work uh, a smaller number of hours. And it would seem to me that the, uh, that the father of the child uh, has an obligation before, long before the child is born um, to, uh, to that child. If, uh, if, you know, you're taking the belief that if you're operating under the belief that this is a, uh, a person, uh, you have that same obligations that you would have to a child for childcare. It's uh, not I think easy. you have to the mother because the mother is the vessel that's keeping the child alive. It's not easy being pregnant. There's increased nope. costs. You got to buy all that pregnancy clothing. You got to go to all these medical appointments and take all these supplements and stuff. You've got to uh, take time off work because, you know, being pregnant is hard. Um, other stuff. I don't really know. <laughs> Rather than waiting till the child's born to start suing the father, uh, you know, I think demand money compensation off the top. And if that doesn't work, get into family court. Yeah. I see no reason why like this, this woman, she may not realize it, but this woman is actually she- going to set an amazing precedent for all people who she's she's turned she's upended it she's 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 thought of a creative way this is thinking outside of the box and she's upended the whole scheme Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's going to uh it's going to end up tying up family law 
courts all over the place. Yep. Because people are going to start saying, you know what? Jeez, that unborn baby, we're going to consider it a baby. Well, then there's legal rights all the way across. Uh, you know, you can sue the, maybe sue the government for failing to, to ensure that the child is taken care of. Yeah, there's lots of things you can do. So I'm uh, super interested in this case, and I hope that somebody is going to sort of follow up on the things that are being. I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm hoping it's litigated, and I hope she, that she runs that argument. Because oh, yeah. you think how many cases that we have that are fascinating cases, and then you end up going to court and you win it for some other reason. Yeah. Um, and then you never end up dealing with that as a, you know, never becomes a precedent. And I hope she gets a really good lawyer to defend her pro bono. Yeah. This argument gets the full treatment that it deserves. I know. If only you could appear in Texas, you'd be down there doing it. Oh, my it. God. This would be if this if this ever happened in Canada, which it it <clears throat> won't. But if it ever did, and if something like this came up, I would be like, I would be taking out a billboard, being like, "Please let me take this case." <laughs> if you're pregnant and got an HOV ticket, call Lee now. Yeah, pregnant in the HOV lane, we can help. <laughs> yeah. Pro bono representation for your unborn child. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I just keep thinking of the uh, of the the room for lawyers to be able to expand their practice. If you're a young lawyer in one of these states that uh, uh, that legislates these ways, you can you know start your lawsuits on behalf of the unborn children. Yep. I don't think there's enough lawsuits of people suing their parents. Yeah, that's another issue. I remember there was one uh, just after I finished university, like four years after I finished university, Jack Watson, who was my advanced criminal law professor at the U of A, had become a, a Queen's bench judge. Now he's on the Court of Appeal. He rendered an interesting decision the last couple of weeks I was reading about. Um, but he uh, he rendered a decision saying, yeah, uh, parental support goes beyond just uh, age 18. You got to pay for the kid's university. And I thought, oh, hmm, I wonder how many people know that. That's still the law in Alberta, at least, um, and probably across the rest of the country. Yep, still in BC. Sue your parents. Don't forget to sue your parents. I thought my parents should have to pay for my university because they stayed together. And it was unjust. If they'd split, you would have had your university paid for? Yeah. I don't understand how that would work. You can explain that logic to me another day. <laughs> okay. I'm happy for your parents. Paul, I believe you have something for our listeners. Well, I do. I have uh, I have the ridiculous, ridiculous driver of the week. But it's not the normal ridiculous driver of the week this is a ridiculous car company of the week yes and the ridiculous car company of the week is bmw now bmw is in an interesting position because um what is the name of their company bmw and what does it stand for bavaria motor and how many motors are they going to be producing um 
when we switched to electric cars. Most of the electric cars basically all just use the same Bosch drive electric systems or something developed by Siemens or some other electrical manufacturer, and they buy the motors. I don't know what Tesla gets, but in any event, it's no longer a situation of engine production and high-precision engines. And BMW has recognized that they are in direct competition with Tesla. I don't know why you would buy a BMW these days when you could buy an electric car that will outperform every BMW uh, that's not electric. But BMW has also taken note of something else that Tesla does, and that is you're driving a Tesla uh, and you have things updated and test your Tesla is in communication with Tesla all of the time. And they took note of another thing, which is when you buy your cell phone, for example, people have become accustomed to paying for apps and for paying for subscription services. And now they have created a subscription service to be able to access a feature that exists in your car. And that is your heated seats. It's bullshit. That's if you can believe it, you buy your BMW. You pay for you, the seat heating equipment. You pay for the vehicle. You carry around the weight of the equipment in your vehicle, but you cannot use that feature in your vehicle unless you pay extra for it, for it to be activated on a monthly basis. Ridiculous. So they're looking for something like 18 bucks a month to use your heated seats. Oh, but you can have a whole year for 180 bucks. Mm, Save you two months worth. (laughs) You're not paying for your heated seats and you're getting July and August free. Yeah. Like, Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I, can only imagine that this is going to lead to uh, um, very bad press and people hating BMW. Uh, you know, when hotels charge for um, internet, uh, you know, you can understand it's an extra way for them to make a little bit of money. And when they charge for these extra things, uh, it makes people angry. And the hotel industry recognized this. So they, you know, created uh, free internet, and then you can pay for faster internet. And maybe if you get a really nice room, you get fast internet included. But the point is, people expect certain things. However, look at look at flights. You know, we used to get a meal. Mm-hmm. Now you get nothing. Uh, you know, you get a drink, which is basically just to you know keep you alive during the course of the flight. Mm-hmm. Um, like a bag. Yeah. Um, you don't even get water. Yeah, I mean, you don't get you don't get anything on some flights. Um, Those are at least like low cost airlines where, you know, you're you're paying forty seven dollars for your ticket and you're giving up some comforts in exchange for cheapness. BMW is a luxury car brand. I know. I know. And uh, I I can't understand uh, how this made it past their like marketing team or their loyalty team. I can see how it made it past their we want more money team. Um, you know, how can we turn our car into a regular supply of money for us after we've sold it, aside from ridiculous service uh, prices for service and parts? Um, but this is truly offensive. I mean, it, it is the type of thing that will lead to a backlash. BMW has been like desperately trying to f- find or maintain a niche uh, as the 
car market changes and I, their loss of sales, uh, you know, that are a direct loss to Tesla has to have been a huge hit. Uh, their remedy has been just to make their grills bigger and now to charge you for your heated seat well, for I- you to use it on a subscription service. And look, um, if people don't push back on this, it it's a slippery slope because, you know, like you said, airlines are getting away with it. It happens in apps all the time. You download an app and then all of a sudden you want to use this feature. You got to pay 99 cents for it or whatever, right? It's, it's in apps. We're getting used to like a, like a mini cost society where everything you do has a cost associated with it doesn't seem like a big deal. 18 bucks. I'll fucking pay $18 for my ass to be warm in the middle of winter at minus 30. Um, you know, but it's, it's a something in your car already. It's a feature in your car and you're paying extra to use it after the fact. Just turn the software on. Which um, tells you a lot about options in cars because most of the options in your car that you opted not to get that were electronic were already wired into your car. They may not have had the final component in there to make it function, like the switch, but the wiring harness was probably the same, uh, particularly because these days the wiring harness is probably a fiber optic loop. But the uh, most of the stuff in there for most of the options is there. You know, I elected not to get the GPS in our SUV, uh, and I would imagine the the component was an extra few pennies but you think about our rico copier okay um they told us that it it would need a special card to be able to use with apple um computers and it turns out the card that they wanted eight hundred dollars for was an sd card that just pops into a slot i've got one of those yeah it was just an sd card um so you know this is how companies make money uh you know people don't know what they're what they're getting um and you know it's already in the car in this case and they're not going to activate it unless you pay in a sense here they're being a little bit more transparent perhaps because they're producing every damn one of them with heated seats mind you every bmw comes with heated seats so this is yeah this is full-on bullshit I wonder if we won't start seeing the same way we saw with people jailbreaking cell phones. Companies start to offer to jailbreak the software on your car so you don't have to pay for these features that you're being microtransactioned for. Well, I mean, something like heated seats is basically electricity to uh, uh, wires in the seat, right? So it's not exactly difficult to run some new wires. Um, you know, you could, uh, if you buy that car, uh, make some modification, of course, they're going to claim that it violates all the warranty on the car entirely. Uh, but you know, uh, it is just such a, uh, a bad decision for this brand, um, you know, that, that they would try and do this and persuade themselves that they should be the ones to do it and that they should be the first ones to do it. Um, you would think that somebody who was selling a nickel and dime product would do that where yeah. you're buying add-ons, do but this is purportedly a, a, a luxury car, a luxury performance car. If I'm, if I'm paying $80,000 <clears> for a car, I want it to do all the things and I don't want to think about it. Yeah. 
I mean, I don't, anyway, that, that is the ridiculous car out. manufacturer of the week. I found BMW to be r- ridiculous many times over in the course of my life, but this is a new level of ridiculosity. Mm-hmm. Sorry, BMW, you'd better rethink this. Walk it back soon. Yeah. Faster. Yep. That's our podcast. If you have any driving law related issues you need to reach out to us about, you can give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 